Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Timothy Tennant. He is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. He's been to Beeson Divinity School before, and we welcome him back today. Glad to have you with us, Tim. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, I want to begin by just pointing out, many of our listeners may know this, some may not, that there is a a kind of historic connection between Beeson Divinity School and Asbury Theological Seminary in that we both have been the wonderful uh, beneficiaries of uh, Ralph Waldo Beeson's bequest to theological education made uh, shortly before his death in 1990. And so we are always glad to know about Asbury and what's happening there because we sense a real spiritual kinship with you as a school, uh, committed to the evangelical faith and the Wesleyan tradition and what we're trying to do here at Beeson. So I want to just point that out and uh, welcome you back in that context. Thank you very much. You are, by, by training, a missiologist. You've been president of Asbury Theological Seminary since 2009. Before that, you were a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the field of history of religions, world Christianity. Say a little bit about uh, that field that you have developed, your own discipline, and why that's important for the church today. Well, missiology, of course, is such an integral part of the church's mission and nature of, of Christ's work is to, um, to share the gospel globally. And so I've always felt like, especially in North America, that missions have been insufficiently rooted, mostly rooted in social sciences. And I felt like that one of the great contributions that I could make was to try to help reorient missiology into the theological disciplines in church history. So most of my work has been trying to uh, reintegrate uh, missiology with theology. And that's Mm -hmm. been most of the project I worked on at Gordon-Conwell. Now, you've uh, recently identified top ten mission trends uh, that are important in the world today. Uh, tell us what some of those are and how they relate to the life of the church. One of my concerns in those trends were to find ways just to help pastors and churches to help communicate a lot of the trends to their churches. So it was done kind of a popular way, top 10 trends. You could have 10 or 15. But uh, I was identifying concerns about particularly access to the gospel and viability of churches. Mm. And so I was exploring, when we deploy resources and money and personnel to the mission field, I've often said to people, I don't really think the church needs more money given to missions. What we need is to do a better job of deploying the resources we already have. A lot of the resources that we currently invest in missions are actually going to where the church is already viable Mm -hmm. or the gospel already has access. So essentially we do things where we, we evangelize people f- for other churches rather than their own enabling evangelism. So it's helping the church to better prioritize uh, what is actually uh, missiological, what's cross-cultural, where the church is most needed. And that's kind of what drives a lot of those trends. Now, we live in a, a time of economic difficulty for many people, and so one, one of the things that sometimes gets cut in church budgets are funds that are directed uh, to missions. And you're saying money is important, but there are other things that are perhaps more urgent for Christians to be engaged with at the local church level here in North America to go no further. That's right. And even the growing cross-cultural challenges in North America, uh, missions is really about peoples, not places. And so there are many missiological challenges right here in North America. 
not, not quite apart from around the world. So uh, churches can do a smarter job, I think, of investing their money, even in, especially in times of economic challenge. Let me ask you to comment on uh, what seems to me just a tremendous uh, trend, and maybe that's a word for it, in the study of missions, at least since the late 80s and early 90s, and that's this awareness that we all have now of the global south. Uh, the work of Lamansani and Andy Wall. There were so many people. Philip Jenkins has brought this out. Say a little bit about that, if you see that as a major trend in the study of world Christianity, and how that impacts the way we in the West and in the North, that is north of the equator, think about uh, our own place in the world Christian movement. Yeah, I think in the past we've been very denominational-oriented, and we've often been very Western-centric in our views of church history. So, for example, when you go through um, seminary today, mostly we study the Western trajectory of church history. We study our own kind of, uh, as Andrew Walls often says, we, whenever we study church history, we're actually studying church history, not Christian history. And we, therefore, we study it along a certain confessional lines, and we often miss a lot of tremendous things that have happened and are happening. One of Philip Jenkins' recent books, The, the Lost History of Christianity, the thousand years of you know, Middle, Middle East, African Christianity, wow. people don't even realize. So I think what's happening today is there's now a much greater awareness of the global church, what God is doing in the Indian church, the Chinese church, and in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, my own work in India for over 20 years, I have seen the vibrancy of, a, for example, South Indian missionaries moving to North India, which wouldn't even be counted as missionaries by traditional Western understanding of people leaving their country. Right. But it's very cross-cultural, very dynamic. Thousands of new churches being found and formed by mission societies formed by indigenous countries outside the West. I was just in Lausanne in South Africa in, uh, in October, and to see the amazing representation of countries around the world with vibrant churches. This is really, really important for us to recognize and respond to as as really citizens of the global church today. And not, not to deny our particularities. It's important yeah. to remember our traditions, but also see how God is moving around the world in, in new and exciting ways. It is an exciting thing to see. Now, you're a historian and a theologian, a missiologist. You're, you're not so much a prophet, maybe. But I want to ask you to be a prophet for a moment and just think 50 years down the road to, to the year 2060. What will the world look like? What will the Christian world look like if the trends we see now continue at the rate they're going? Well, if the trends are what we expect, the, the center of Christian, Christian gravity, which is uh, in 1970, by the way, was the first time that the, the center of the Christian movement actually began to move back eastward again. That's the first time in 1,600 years. Mm. So what we see is the church, uh, actually all the way through 2100, will continue to move southward and eastward. That means, uh, effectively, there'll be a lot more Christians in places like India and China and sub-Saharan Africa. The trajectory of North American Christianity will be a lot more diverse. Christianity will still be vibrant. Even in 2060, the United States will still have more Christians than any country in the world. But the makeup of Christianity in North America will be dramatically different. So the African, the, the Korean churches in North America, the Chinese church in North America will be the dominant churches. I think the megachurches today will, will largely disappear and what we'll see are mostly a lot more smaller churches or networks of smaller churches. Uh, so I think the church will be probably more church meeting points in North America, but probably a lot smaller per meeting point. So I think we're seeing a lot of changes in how people connect each, with each other. I think the 
denominational orientation that we currently enjoy will be largely displaced by non-Protestant, non-Roman Catholic, non-Eastern Orthodox movements. So this would be a fourth branch of Christianity, which is emerging. Talk about that. Would, would this be would we would call these Pentecostal, charismatic? How would you describe this fourth, this emerging reality of the world Christian movement? Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on because we're not we're not yet able to identify what is the kind of controlling center of these movements. But what we are seeing is that if you compare the growth rate or even decline of mainline churches, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and so forth. What you actually see is that these indigenous churches are growing exponentially faster than any other movement. These are churches that have no connection to Rome, are not submitted to any patriarch in the East, and are not traceable back to any European protest movement. So they are actually a different kind of movement, and we'll see increasingly Western churches connecting to those. And you see even here Anglican churches submitted to uh, Rwandan bishops and all. So (laughs) this is kind of the wave of the future, I think. Yeah, well, there's some very encouraging things about that, but it's a little unsettling when you try to get your mind around it and uh, think about how that's going to actually look uh, a few decades from now. I want to pursue this line a little bit of uh, asking you a a, a theological question. I mean, one one of the the great gifts you bring to the study of missiology is your theological sensitivity and awareness that this is not just a phenomenological study, but it has to do with the heart of the Christian faith and how we present that, how we think about that. And that's the whole question of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in a world of uh, increasing pluralism. How do we present that message? Is John fourteen six really still true for Christians today, and will it be tomorrow? John fourteen six is still true uh, for every generation. And I, as I tell our students, I say, you know, we don't need to make the gospel relevant to culture. The gospel is eternally relevant, and therefore, the gospel remains the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And the pluralistic trend is mostly about another form of postmodernity being ashamed of the gospel, linked, I think, as well with a lot of lack of confidence in biblical authority, confidence in uh, or any, even the church, life of the church. So I think the Christian movement has to re-articulate the, the, the power of the gospel and the uniqueness of Christ in our day. It's essential that we do that. And talk about this in the context of a generation that has to have the meta narrative reconstructed for them. There, there's no, it's one thing to talk about truth to a culture that already has a category of truth, but that category itself is under, under demise. And therefore, everything under the category of truth is under effect, not just the Christ uniqueness. So I think new students today have to be prepared to go out and really reconstruct the whole canopy of truth. And what does it mean to believe? that there are objective truths, that God has, in fact, revealed himself to us in his own act of grace. It seems to me what you've just said is certainly true in North America and in Europe, Europe, the western part of Europe. I wonder if it's as true in some of this emerging south of the equator global Christianity we've been talking about. I, I was at a conference in Seville, Spain, several years ago. It was it was it brought together Christians from all over the world, and we were talking about what's the situation in the church today. And a lot of us from the West, including myself, were very concerned about postmodernism and all of the issues we struggle with. But the the people from Africa were raising questions like, this this is of no interest to us. We want to know how do you cast out demons? Mm-hmm. What do you do with witchcraft? Right. Questions that are just 
haven't been on our radar. So I'm wondering if that's part of the, the changing reality as we have to listen to different questions and think our way into how other Christians in the world are encountering uh, the reality of God in ways that perhaps we've just become tone deaf to uh, here in the West. I don't know what you think about that. No, I totally agree. That's the great thing of global Christianity is that every church has its weak spots, its blind spots. And we can learn so much vibrancy. And I think our North American Christianity has been domesticated by its long sojourn with Christendom. And I think when, when I work in India, you experience new vibrancy. And But I will say this, though, though I totally agree with that. I think we have to be reminded, though, that many of the seminaries in places like India and even in Africa have, in fact, been infected by Western European liberalism. Yeah. So there is a need to also pray for God to raise up really good, solid theological education. On the ground, grassroots evangelism, church planting, very, very vibrant. But when it comes to uh, serious theological education, we need to build a global network of schools that really reinforce historic Christianity. And I know that Asbury Theological Seminary has a worldwide network of alums who are serving the cause of Christ on every continent on earth, as we do here at Beeson Divinity School, and that's a very important part of what we try to do here at Beeson through our global center. How do you how do you do that in theological education? How do you make students who are at least uh, mostly drawn from North America and, and Western countries experientially aware of the world Christian realities today? Well, what we're doing, we're actually asking all of our students to not graduate with the MDiv degree, at least, the MDiv degree, not graduate without a cross-cultural experience. So we're creating a network of opportunities, uh, both cross-cultural in the U.S. as well as abroad. So students who graduate uh, would, in fact, be exposed to global Christianity. They'd spend six weeks looking at a seminary in Africa or working in India. And uh, I did this for 11 years at Gordon-Conwell. We had hundreds of students every year who went out in uh, what we called a overseas missions practicum. Very successful, and uh, we're implementing a similar thing like that in, at, at Asbury. Mm-hmm. So I think students today have to be exposed to the global church in a ways that wasn't necessary 50 years ago. And we follow a very similar kind of paradigm here at Beeson in what we call cross-cultural immersion experiences for our students. We, it's a requirement for all of our MDiv students. And I talk to students who, who do this, and, and some, you know, sometimes it'll be a month, sometimes a summer, sometimes a few weeks, but it's more than just a visit to another country. It really is intended to experience uh, expose them and have them live and, and, and think with Christians in other places in the world in a ministry setting, when they come back, I, I find in, invariably their lives have been transformed. It's probably the most transformative experience mm-hmm. uh, that we offer students uh, here at Beeson. And that's a wonderful way to uh, at least keep that consciousness uh, in, in the minds of future pastors and church leaders. I want to shift focus just a little bit. We've been talking a lot about your your field of study, and you really are a leader in helping Christians think about world Christianity and how that relates to our theological commitments and our mission. I, I want to talk a little bit about you as a Wesleyan, and maybe you could say a little bit about your own uh, Christian background and spiritual journey and what led you to Asbury Theological Seminary. What is a Wesleyan, and why is, why is it important to be one today? Uh, thank you. Well, I have a great appreciation for the uh, Reformed tradition, uh, but I think that for me, I grew up in Methodist mama life. My uh, family, as you may know, my historically my family were very devout Presbyterians. The Tenet family is famous in uh, Presbyterian educational circles, but in my own immediate family, we were Methodist, and 
Uh, I think I just grew to appreciate uh, John Wesley's reflective look back on the Reformation from uh, the 18th century. And I think what happened under Wesley was that uh, he looked back on the Reformation. He understood that the Reformation had very wisely restored the heart of the meta narrative, restored the centrality of Christ's death and resurrection. But I think in the process, we had not sufficiently let the meta narrative to continue to unfold to be fully Trinitarian. So Wesley uh, understood that the meta-narrative continues to unfold. The gospel is not just looking back at what God did at the mm. cross, but he continues to unfold it in the Pentecost, in the life of the church, and so forth. So that opened up, I think, a more robust appreciation for catechesis, for uh, small groups, discipleship. So Wesley was was keenly interested in spiritual formation, is the language we'd use probably today. Uh, he was very keenly interested in what it means for the church to impact the society. So it was more than justification; it was uh, it was sanctification. So Wesley's main emphasis, uh, first of all, was in the area of provenient grace. He believed that that whenever you went out to witness to somebody, you had to believe that God had already beat you there. <laughs> that God was preparing people. This is like, you know, Preparato Evangelica and Justin mm-hmm. Martyr. This is that kind of preparation for the gospel. Wesley believed that uh, he still believed in total depravity like Calvin, mm-hmm. but he believed that God also acted proveniently to lift people out of their depravity so they could actually make true decisions for the gospel. And then he believed that uh, he believed in a robust sanctification. He called it being made perfect in love or being have a second blessing, a different language for it. But the idea would be to... Uh, have a person experience a sanctifying work of God that would be comparable to your justifying work of God's grace in your life. Mm. So he believe, he still believes by grace. He believed that you're justified by grace through God, through faith, and you're sanctified by grace. But he did believe then a subsequent experience uh, to your justification. And that's a bit unique, I think. Uh, you see it a lot in Pentecostal circles today, of course, but it was very much part of the Wesleyan movement was to emphasize that it wasn't enough just to be justified. One had to be also sanctified in order to best fulfill God's purposes in your life. You know, it's sometimes said that the uh, the Methodist Church grew up over John Wesley's dead body because he actually never left in an official way the Church of England. I was always a priest in the Church of England. And yet the history of Methodism early on, especially I think in America, uh, kind of uh, had its own uh, calling and and was so very important in bringing the gospel to the frontier and 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 really uh, carrying out that mission. And Asbury, if I just can interrupt, uh, Francis Asbury, uh, as you know, Wesley himself recalled the ministers back to uh, to England because of the revolution, and and Asbury refused to come back. Yeah, and so the result was. <laughs> He, they reportedly, he was the most recognized face in America at that time, more than George Washington. In terms of face-to-face, he'd actually met more Americans face-to-face than anybody. How about that? Because his whole life, he never married. He never had a home. He literally spent his you know, year, decades literally traveling on horseback, mm. traveled as much as John Wesley did, and planting churches. And so um, it did end up with a very strong revivalistic fervor, the frontier you know, connection was there that did give the American Methodist their own unique history that yeah. is uh, distinct from the English tradition. And the school for which you serve as president is named for this person, Francis Asbury. I think you have a statue of him on your campus when I visited there. I've seen that. Tell us a little bit about the history of Asbury Theological Seminary, and, and how would you describe the mission of Asbury in terms of, say, the World Methodist Movement and the World Christian Movement? 
Yeah, Asbury was found in 1923 uh, by a very well-known uh, orator at the time, a camp meeting preacher named uh, Henry Clay Morrison. Uh, he was uh, known at the time as one of the finest orators in America, and he also spent most of his life traveling around preaching. And he had come to Asbury College, now Asbury University, as the president. And he had a, a uh, journal that he published called the Pentecostal Herald, which was very popular at that time. And he used that base of connections in order to start a seminary. So 1923, he crossed the street because uh, the college is on one side, we're on the other, as you know. Mm-hmm. And he started Asbury Seminary. By the 30s, it became separate institutions. Um, and Asbury grew. It's actually birthed out of the fundamentalist modernist movement. Uh, as you know, there was a big tension uh, between um, whether the Gospels were true, whether the, uh, a lot of churches were having doubt about the Gospel uh, in the modernist movement. And um, he had uh, he was strongly reacting against that and believed that we needed to have a seminary that was based on historic Christianity, commitment to Scripture, and, and true Wesleyan principles. It was really born, born out of that uh, fervor. It was also born during Prohibition. So it was a very strong 1923. It was middle of uh, Prohibition. So it was born at a time when uh, the, the, just the whole country was in a real uh, – uproar about what does it mean to live a holy life. Mm. So it was all part of that. The holiness tradition is part of Asbury's heritage. And so holiness uh, is is one of the great themes I associate with your school and with that movement. And uh, what is holiness? I mean, it's, it's such a great theme in the Bible. No one shall see God without holiness. And we have those verses in Scripture. We're called to be holy, a holy people. Uh, and yet it's a word today that I think often in, in popular American evangelical imagination – uh, tends to be associated with you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't go to movies, the, the, these kind of standards from days gone by. Uh, but holiness has much deeper roots than that, doesn't it? Well, what, how would you talk about holiness? Yeah, what I said to our students is that I, I think that the holiness movement tended to focus on the negative things. Um, and I tell our students, I'll say, you know, if you were to eradicate every sin in your life, even if you could do that, you're only halfway there. <laughs> Because in in the Wesley's vision, it's really not so much about what you don't do, but about what it means to actually cultivate the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life, the, mm. the, 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 the character of Christ in your life. So it's not just about what you don't do. It's about what God enables us to, to be and to live. So I think another thing I think has changed is that I think in the past it was focused much more on what we today would call personal holiness, whereas the Methodist tradition has always been as committed to social holiness. What does it mean to embody the church, to embody the new creation in the present age, and to live that out in you know, everything from child labor laws to you know, female suffrage to prison reform? I mean, the, the, the Wesleyans led a lot of these movements that created real transformation in our society. So the holiness movement, I think, has become known as a, a narrowly focused movement, but, it, but actually in its best biblical sense, it should be a very robust broad view of, of living like Christ and the church embodying the future realities that we're to embody in the church today. Yeah, I remember a, a book that meant a lot to me, I'm sure you know it well, is Timothy Smith's book on revivalism and social reform. He was a Nazarene pastor mm-hmm. and very much committed to the Wesleyan vision. Uh, but s- showing how this vision for social reform, as, it, as he calls it, was actually deeply rooted in the Christian faith and in the evangelical faith, and as he was looking at it, particularly in the Wesleyan 
version of that? My friend Tom Oden likes to say that the evangelical airplane needs to fly with two wings, a Reformed wing and a Wesleyan wing. And when we get out of kilter, then there's a lot of turbulence. Uh, And it seems to me that there's some wisdom in that because both of these great traditions of the Protestant movement bring special charisms uh, Mm -hmm. to the body of Christ. And uh, I I like the model of Wesley and Whitfield in their own day, very different personalities differing on predestination and Calvinism and other theological issues. They didn't back away from their differences, but they found a way to work together to affirm Mm -hmm. one another. Uh, and at the end of their life, uh, to commend themselves to God uh, in the presence of one another. And it seems to me that's a good model for Mm. Reformed Christians and Wesleyan Christians uh, who stand in that tradition today. I agree, and there's so many strengths the Reformed movement brings to the church, and we're definitely strengthened by that. And I'm Having taught 11 years at Gordon-Conwell, I have a lot of appreciation for it. And and yet at Asbury, I've seen the deep DNA-type commitment to spiritual formation there that I so appreciate uh, about the Wesleyan tradition. It's just so much a part of the Asbury, almost unconsciously, they, uh, they embody that in ways that are so beautiful. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Timothy Tennant. He is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. And I want to refer everyone to his blog. He's a great blogger. Give us the title of your, your blog. It's just www.timothytennant.com. You can go on there and find his thinking about questions of world religions, missiology, theological education, a lot of things we've talked about today. Very interesting material that will help you in your own Christian walk and your own thinking about the church. So blessing to have you here at Beeson, and I'm so glad to welcome you to this podcast. And thank God for you and all you're doing at Asbury Theological Seminary. Thank you. It's been a joy to be here, and may God bless Beeson Divinity School. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.